Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Andrew Malia. Andrew is my cousin's husband, actually, but he also happens to be a maritime consultant specializing in maritime security. And uh, he's been all over the world, worked with multiple navy, navies, multiple countries, dealing with challenges with shipping, with migrants, with piracy, with mass emigration, and all these kind of problems. So uh, I'm really fascinated to have Andrew along today because we're going to be looking at the effect of shipping and the global supply chain. What very few of us realize is just the extent to which shipping touches our day-to-day lives. Or almost every product that is involved in the global economy has at some point gone onto the sea and been shipped uh, hundreds or thousands of miles past pirates uh, through uh, all sorts, sorts of turmoil. And as recession hits, I'm really curious to explore how this is going to affect shipping and therefore supply chains, because that will have a massive effect on all of us as salespeople. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Would you mind giving the audience 90 seconds on your history, please, so people understand where you're coming from? Started off by joining the military at a very young age, became a naval officer here in Malta, served for about 25 years. You don't look old enough. I know, but I try. (laughs) Uh, Towards the end of my career, I started uh, getting a little bit more interested in the academics of things. So I I did a few qualifications which would serve me well when I went to Civvy Street. And since departing the armed forces, I've been working as a maritime security consultant. I do work a bit for private industry. My main interest is working for international organizations, Uh, notably the International Maritime Organization is probably the person or the entity I work for most as the UN agency responsible for clean, safe and secure shipping, as they say. Thank you for that. Let's start with shipping. Just describe the world of shipping to us so we've got a sense of the scale and magnitude. Well, it's, you know, 45 plus thousand ocean going vessels uh, in the world, you know, which are carrying everything you can imagine in terms of both materials, finished goods, people, bulk products like hydrocarbons, oil, gas, iron ore, everything you can imagine, and to every corner of the globe, because there are some landlocked countries. But even they understand the relevance and importance of shipping to their economy, because although what enters into their countries may actually enter by land, at some point will have been shipped. To give you an example, one, two of the countries who have large shipping registries are Switzerland and Mongolia, both of whom are (laughs) landlocked. Slightly different registries. Switzerland is mostly super yachts, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. for tax purposes, whereas Mongolia is more commercial shipping. But they do have shipping registries because they understand that that's a critical part of their supply chain. Okay, so let's try and understand how globalised we are at the moment, because I think it's important to begin with where we are today. How interconnected are the uh, global supply chains and uh, what you know, what does shipping actually touch indirectly? Talk us through the complexity. Okay, starting from the complexity of an individual ship. So that ship will be registered in a particular country and carry the flag of that country. 
It will be manned by a crew. I, I use the term manned loosely because obviously it's... Um, sailored by. Sailored by, to be politically correct. A crew who could come from anywhere between 10 and 15 different states. It could be chartered to a charterer in a third country. The cargo on board will be owned by yet another entity in yet another country. The insurers who insure the, the cargo and the vessel, they could possibly be separate insurers from other countries. The people who manage the ship uh, or the safety managers for that ship uh, could come from another country. And it could be sold halfway through the voyage, in theory. Both the ship or its cargo could be sold halfway through the voyage. So the complexity of a single vessel carrying a cargo from A to B is likely to involve at least eight or nine different countries. Right. Okay. But th this also then speaks to another massive vulnerability that we have, which is that supply chain will depend on cheap oil because with all of those hands touching it, there will come a point where it becomes uneconomic to ship stuff. And the people who are going to be on the shitty end of the stick on that, presumably, are the ones who can pay the least. Well, it, it's, it sounds like it's not a very efficient way of doing business. No, no, it sounds like it's perfectly efficient. Commercially. The, the, the economics depends on cheap oil. You can't do it without cheap oil. Yes and no. For give, a given amount of money which you can spend on fuel, getting something from A to B, the most cost-efficient way, is and will remain shipping. It's more Absolutely. efficient as in terms of energy efficient than clearly than aircraft but also than any other form of land transport. Shipping is highly efficient, and it's because, uh, it's an area where there's significant efforts to make it even more efficient. Partly environmental, because there's a new emission standards which have been uh, now promulgated for ships, so yeah. they have reduced their emissions. But also, clearly, as you mentioned, to cut down the overheads, because for a significant period of time, the main overhead, as in the aviation industry, has been fuel. But there's a lot of effort um, looking at wind assistance, looking at alternative fuels, looking at even... So we're going back to sailing ships. Well, sail assisted. There's also a company who just purchased a sailing ship and they're going to ship, I think it's coffee from South America to Europe. So they've chosen a high value cargo, really nice posh coffee, and they're going to try and ship it from South, South America to uh, Europe using a sailing ship. But... The US is looking again at nuclear for commercial vessels as well. That's come back into the discussion. They did it in the 60s and 70s. Russia has continued to do it. The US are thinking about nuclear again. Yeah, it's still very efficient in terms of fuel consumption, but it's under pressure just like any other industry. What I am curious about, and maybe later in the discussion, we'll dig a bit deeper into how you think supply chains are likely to be affected by stuff like Ukraine, the recession, um, you know, maybe, who knows, uh, we go into another pandemic. These things are all possibilities. And I, I'm curious to, um, to think ahead so that we, at least uh, our minds are attuned to the questions we need to be asking when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, the, the strange thing is, I think one of the areas where the industry is actually looking to cut costs is not fuel, it's personnel. Is that's one of the most expensive parts of owning and running a ship. And now the discussion is moving towards autonomous ships. So you have just one guy in a control room somewhere in the world looking after running three or four ships, which are otherwise completely autonomous. Um, it's a bit scary from a security perspective. 
I've yet to be convinced whether that's the way forward. There's already some small-scale trials, but that's another area where they're saving money on people, as always, as in any industry. Interesting. Okay. So if we look at the interconnectedness of the supply chains through globalization, what we've ended up with is a situation where to produce an HB pencil, there are probably 100 different suppliers. Uh, When you take in all the raw materials, the chemicals, the paints, and the intermediate uh, intermediate products, the glue, the graphite, the transportation, the packaging, the design, all yeah. of these things. And at every stage, there's somebody touching it. Now, what we are starting to see is more supply chains coming onshore. However, the practicalities of doing that, are it might take 10 years or even longer in some cases, if you're talking about heavy and in, heavy industrial. It's not just a question of how long it takes. At some point, whatever your product is and however sophisticated it is, you come down to raw materials. And the geographic reality is that those raw materials aren't necessarily available everywhere. Rare earths is a really good example. China currently has a pretty heavy monopoly on the extraction of rare earths because they happen to be in that geographic space. Now, there's been some discoveries now, I think, in Africa, and there's also in Northern Europe, they've made a small discovery of rare earths. But the resources, the raw resources, are never going to be where you need them necessarily. So that part of the supply chain can't be eliminated. You can onshore a certain amount when you're moving from processing, for instance, the raw materials and then moving towards the finished product. Yes, but there are certain raw materials which, you know, just have to come from somewhere else. Another one will be oil, because oil reserves in Europe are, are, you know, towards the end of their life. And and new oil reserves are not being discovered around Europe. They're being discovered elsewhere. And oil isn't just energy. Oil is is the raw material for plastics and for a a bunch of other stuff. So Pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals, fertilizers, everything. Unless those raw materials are available where you need them, then you have to get them there. And the most efficient way of getting them there is and will continue to be shipping. Pipelines are pretty good, but pipelines are limited to liquid cargoes. And it takes a lot of capital investment to put them into place, you know, in a long time. Whereas if you have a new discovery of something and you carry it on ships, you can start shipping within months rather than within years. So ships are always going to have that role. Okay. Well, let's look at the whole era of peace in our time and maritime security following Bretton Woods because the Americans effectively made a contract with the rest of the world. They would make shipping safe uh, to to facilitate free trade. But with America looking like it's becoming more conservative and more withdrawn, and them being one of only a few countries on the uh, the planet that are energy and food self-sufficient, what are the possible implications of them withdrawing from the seas? Or is that very unlikely? They may not have a choice because it, it's it's also resource-driven. They just don't have the resources which they used to have. I mean, in the times of Reagan, there was the talk of the famous 600-ship Navy, and now they're pushing to even reach 300. Okay, then there are other agencies which are taking up the slack, like the US Coast Guard. But there is clearly a push by other states to fill up what they perceive to be that void. China is a clear near peer competitor, if you want to call it that. But they are now exercising their maritime strength in very creative ways, not just with navies, but also with these maritime militias 
and with um, very organized and aggressive uh, fishing activities. So if what do you, you mean? In the sense that the, the, um, the fishing boats are acting in groups with at least a degree of national sanctioning and aggressively entering areas which are supposed to be restricted for fishing and fishing there. So even as far as South America and further afield. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. Uh, well, clearly they're looking for protein. They have a big population to feed, even though it's getting slightly smaller now. You know, there's, there's this, there's this um, push to be able to access these food resources. So, yes, when you leave the void, someone's going to fill it. At the same time as we've watched the United States perhaps wane slightly, we are seeing, however, other states who are recognizing the importance and, and building up their capabilities. States like Indonesia and Malaysia, who are now becoming big regional players in the maritime field. Other states like Australia, South American states, who are now building up their capability, both operational and diplomatic and political, to be able to operate outside their areas and influence events further afield. So I don't think that the US will just completely withdraw. That's not on the cards. Mm -hmm. And there is a push to, to rebuild right now. Obviously, the question is where the money's going to come from. At the end of the day, it all comes down to that. But there are also other states which are stepping up, fill gaps, which they perhaps in the past would not fill. We're seeing the German Navy deploying to Southeast Asia. They haven't done that in 100 years. So that, that presence there, that's making an important statement, a statement on behalf of Germany itself, but also a statement on behalf of the European Union, who are also, as an entity, trying to build up their profile in these areas. So there are people trying to fill the gaps. Right. Okay. What could cause the global shipping supply chain to go into turmoil? Well, it could be a, a black swan event like the famous blockage of the Suez Canal, which we saw not okay. long ago, which I think the ripples of it are still being felt up until this day. There's still a backlog which has to be cleared thanks to that, I think, 10-day blockage of the canal. So you have these choke points. How long ago was that? Oh, I think it was about a year ago now. Wow. Or possibly a bit more. It, it, um, I mean, that speaks to how delicate the whole thing is, doesn't it? In certain choke points. The thing was, it came at a time when, when capacity was a problem as well. Because of the pandemic, there was also a capacity shortfall and a capacity bottleneck. So it was, as I said, it was a black swan event. It was a, it was a perfect storm in that particular right. case. But it also shows the, the vulnerability of these choke points. You've got the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal. You've got the, um, the Singapore Straits, for instance. You know, all these are areas where, for geographical and, and operational regions, reasons, ships pass in large volumes. The Straits of Gibraltar would be another. Um, Bosphorus. Well, yeah, Bosphorus, clearly. So these are places where it can happen. What can happen? In the early 2000s, a bunch of disgruntled Somali fishermen who, who felt that their fish were being stolen by outsiders decided to do something about it. And that turned into an event which had a massive effect on global shipping. It had a massive effect on insurance rates. It's only at the beginning of this year that the high-risk area for insurance for the Horn of Africa has been removed. First of January 2023. Right. And this kicked off back in, you know, the early 2000s. It was reduced progressively, but it's only been removed now. 
So the additional insurance premia no longer need to be paid. Up until then, there was an additional premium which you'd have to pay to transit that area, plus maybe you're paying for armed guards on board your vessel and so on and so forth. So the event could be anything. It could be a 9-11 type event in the sense that on 9-11, a commercial transportation means was weaponized. In this case, it was an aircraft. But there's nothing to say that can't be done with a ship. So you have to ask yourself, what would the effect of that be on the industry? Where it depends on where the attack is as well. And then there are the ports. The ports are, you know, it's great having ships, but unless ships can load and unload and discharge their cargo, and that cargo can be distributed or collected, they're useless. Then you have the major ports, places like Rotterdam, all these large mega ports, the mega ports in around Shanghai in China. These are critical infrastructure, Los Angeles, the ports of Los Angeles, which is the main gateway for the, for the West Coast of the US, constantly being subjected to threats of various kinds. Most common now is cyber interference as well, which is happening a lot. I read a report about the port of Los Angeles, which is saying they're dealing with multiple thousands of events a month, cyber events a month. Mm-hmm. So if something happens to the ports, you have an equal disruption. So you have to look at it as a system. It will only be as good as its weakest link. And again, this therefore requires much longer term thinking. So let's deal with the blind spot of short termism. How are you seeing that affecting the decisions? And what are the uh, unintended knock on effects um, that we're start we're seeing rippling through the system? Well, the first is is capacity. You'll see that the adjustments in capacity, i.e. the number of ships available, uh, number of ships or the slots, container slots available, on the ship side, that gets very quickly adjusted, sometimes too quickly. And it leaves us with a situation where older ships are being scrapped because the capacity isn't currently needed. Then all of a sudden, for whatever economic reasons, there's an increase in demand. And shipping companies find it very difficult to ramp up to meet that demand because it's very easy to scrap a ship, but you need a couple of years to get a ship built and back online. So capacity is is one of the problems. Another problem is, and this is, it's not a short-term thing, but it's a trend which I, I find quite worrying in a way. It's the growth in the size of the individual vessels. Whereas a container ship 30, 40 years ago would carry maybe 1,000, 1,500, what we call TEU, 20-foot equivalent units. So either 20-foot containers or two TEU as a 40-foot container. Yeah. Uh, Now we're looking at ships with 22, 23,000 TEU capacities. And presumably that can only go into very specific ports with the depth. That's exactly the problem. And then you have to have a hub-and-spoke distribution system. And presumably the country that controls that has an undue influence. That's exactly the problem. Once you have hubs, you have have a single point of failure. It's the way it obviously makes economic sense because the the fuel consumption per nautical mile of a 22,000 TU ship is relatively lower than that of a 1,500 TU ship per container. So you can bring down the costs. Size does matter in this case. But also opens the system up. 
to a lot of vulnerabilities. That single ship now carries potentially the supplies for a state from, you know, for the next six months on a single ship. Raw yeah. materials and everything, and a variety of things. There's a lot of safety issues because of the mix of cargoes. How the hell do you pilot one of those, let alone stop it? Uh, with difficulty. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I mean, that does sound, I mean, it, it's tough enough when I was the 15-year-old sailing trying to get a damn thing uh, to go in a place, but uh, a 22,000 unit um, ship. Yeah, that's three. How, how big is that? That must be what seven football stadiums. Oh, three hundred something meters long, and maybe sixty to seventy meters in beam, and uh, drawing maybe seventeen meters of water. What seventy meters deep under oh, yeah. the water? Seventy meters deep, not not the whole height of the vessel. That would be 50, 60 meters as well. I'm saying it needs seventeen meters of water, and they bring them into ports with between half a metre and a metre of space between their keel and the bottom. Wow, that could be messy. It could be very messy. (laughs) And the big problem is, allegedly, the company who's running the vessel knows exactly what's in each box. But every time there's a disaster like a fire on board or containers are lost overboard, it transpires that there were things there which shouldn't have been there, like dangerous cargoes, inflammable stuff, toxic stuff you know, which hasn't been declared properly. So they're also dangerous in that sense. You know, you can get environmental issues, health issues. It's very difficult to know exactly what's in those, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 plus boxes. <laughs> including people, quite often. People, including narcotics. Um, it's now the chosen method of smuggling narcotics from South America to Europe. I mean, Rotterdam and Antwerp have become the biggest ports of entry for cocaine in Europe. We're talking about on a tons basis, not a kilos basis. They ship commercial grade amounts. So, how much is going through those ports? Do, do we know roughly? A, a lot. Uh, if you're seizing multiple tons, that tells you that there's a lot, a lot getting, that's going through. And the the cartels they they calculate that loss into their business model. They they understand that they're not going to get 100 through. So the amounts which are coming in and the main the main shipping ports of entry right now for, for narcotics are Antwerp and Rotterdam, and also down towards the south of Europe, Gioia Tauro in, in Calabria in, in Italy, which is run by the local branch of the mafia, the Indrangheta. So that's their, okay. that's their port for shipping it. Okay. So it sounds to me like there is a certain amount of what uh, you term sea blindness out there as well, where people don't really realize how beholden they are. And as a result, they're probably thinking that they can do things in the future that they may not be able to as the supply chains start to get tighter, raw materials start to go up in price, oil, you know, uh, the volatility around the oil price and so on. So I'm really curious, if we look at the UK, the US, uh, and Europe, because that's where the bulk of the audience is, I'm curious who really gets it and who doesn't. That's a good question. Sea blindness isn't something which just afflicts the, the person in the street. Sea blindness affects governments as well. And there are those governments who are perhaps more sensitized to shipping, and its importance, and those who are clearly less. 
I don't want to name and shame, but I mean, for instance, one government who clearly has a very good perception of shipping and understands how important it is to the state, or a couple would be, for instance, Denmark and Norway. Danish companies are one of the largest ship owners in the world. A famous Maersk Group, which is one of the largest shipping companies, is a Danish company. And they have uh, perhaps a slightly incestuous relationship between industry and government, you know, perhaps too close at times. But they do have a very, very good interface between the two sides to make sure that government is aware of what industry's concerns are and that industry is aware of what government's intentions are. So that's that's very important. It's not the same in all states. Other states are perhaps less aware of just how important shipping is to them and do not prioritize it over other things because so if you don't want to name and shame can we think look for the symptoms so we can be aware yeah i mean one of the things would be um training of, of seafarers um if you look at now the seafarers who the professional seafarers who are out there today very 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 few are from western europe seafarers are now being sourced from eastern european countries they're being sourced from Southeast Asia. There are a number of countries which are famous for providing seafarers, for instance, the Philippines, um, which are extremely uh, prolific when it comes to producing seafarers through the schools in their country. Now, that having been said, right now they're having a tiff with the EU who's saying their training isn't up to standard and may ban them from EU registered vessels, which could be a real interesting scenario. But let's leave that aside for now. But you, you, if you look at one area which is a real indicator would be how many seafarers are being trained and getting out into the industry from the state. And the other would be the flag. European states, especially northern European states, are no longer flag states. It's just too expensive because what they've done is they've put conditions on their flag. So if you want to fly my flag, 50% of your your crew has to be of my nationality. But they happen to be the high earners. They require wages which are at the upper end of the scale, whereas if I go to another flag, they allow me to crew with whoever I want and I can get the cheapest on the market. Not necessarily the best quality, but the cheapest. So certain states are really struggling to generate the professionals in the maritime industry and also struggling to maintain a registry of ships, which at the end of the day, when, when there's a national emergency, they may be a critical piece of infrastructure which you may need to call on support state efforts. It's interesting you say that the EU is picking polls in the Philippines. Mala Duca, who is uh, an activist for Caribbean islands, I think she comes from Tobago, if I remember rightly, she said that there are a number of uh, instances where the EU has created barriers to developing countries and their personnel. Are you seeing that as a policy, or is that something that's genuinely based on the need to improve their standards? This is actually a pretty long-standing beef. Since about 2006, the EU has been conducting audits of the training institutions in the Philippines to support their acceptance of Filipino certificates of competency when manning EU flag vessels. It appears that for some years that they've been saying, look, there are deficiencies. Now, 
I don't know enough to say that those deficiencies are real or perceived. There is a standard, an international standard, it's called the STCW, Standards of Training, Certification and Watchkeeping, and it's set out by the International Maritime Organization. And any training should comply with that. EU is saying that the training being delivered is not completely compliant, there are gaps. And uh, the Philippines are saying, no, we've addressed those gaps, they've been closed. But uh, the impact on, on certain parts of the industry, especially, I'll point out, for instance, the cruise industry, which is heavily mm-hmm. uh, manned or sailored, as, as we said before, by uh, personnel from the Philippines, both on the nautical side and on the hotel side. Yeah. Yes. Which is also, but they also require certification under STCW in certain areas like firefighting and so on and so forth. That industry would take a sharp knock if there, it reached a head where the EU said, okay, nobody with a Filipino certificate of competency will be permitted to serve on board EU ships or EU registered ships. I don't see it coming to that because, as I said, I think we'll be shooting themselves in the foot to a certain degree. Yeah, but we do have a habit of doing that. Very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of the themes that, that I'd like to explore is complacency around security. And I think it's a more general malaise because you said in the green room that people have a tendency to think it's our neighbor's problem. But the reality is that security is everyone's problem. And more often than not, it's the human beings that are the weak link. The technology is probably not the issue. Uh, more often than not, it's uh, some human being does something stupid or inadvertently, and it leaves the door open. I'd agree with that with that second statement for sure. I'd, I'd say you know more than ninety percent of the deficiencies which you can see in a system are are human deficiencies, and whether technological deficiencies, generally because the human isn't using the technology appropriately. Yeah, exactly. It's everyone's problem in shipping, especially because it's a global industry. And in 2004, basically in response to the to the 9-11 attacks, there was a new security code enacted for both ships and ports by the IMO. And that came into force in, I think, July of 2006, because there's always a grace period before it enters into force. The reality is that in 2023, there are still states which haven't completely implemented the requirements of that code. And... The problem with that is because it's a global industry, that weakness in the system affects the whole system. So if people are able to smuggle, let's say, radioactive waste on board in a particular port because there is no setup to screen for it, and at some point that container is going to turn up in my backyard with all this radioactive waste, and I'm going to have to deal with the problem. So there is complacency. And part of the complacency is, is historic. The reality is that in certain places I go, the port was a place which belonged to the public. You could go and fish at the port, you know, you could go and have a coffee down at the port. And they're finding it very hard to understand why is this now a restricted area where I need a badge to access, you know? Why are people asking me what I want here? I just want to take a stroll around the waterside because that's what I did with my dad 30, 40 years ago. There's a mindset which has to change as in the ports are no longer a place which has to be open to everyone. But there's also this problem that unless something really happens, unless there is an incident, it's hard to justify the complications and the cost. There's security costs. 
And many people do not see it from an investment perspective, but it is an investment because if you have a safe port, it's insurance. Yeah, there is some amount of pressure on ports, not international. It's mostly uh, unilateral. For instance, the US have a program where the US Coast Guard is going around inspecting ports. In the US or all over the world? All over the world. You know, they ask to inspect your port and you can say no if you don't want them to, at which point you can't ship directly to the United States. And if they inspect your port and decide that your port doesn't look good, then they'll say you can't ship directly to the United States and US flag vessels can't come in here. Well, this has some really interesting implications because to my mind, I think powers like Turkey and Israel are probably going to be flexing their muscles more and more. And that means that, yeah, I mean, the Israelis haven't exactly been uh, recalcitrant when uh, it comes to um, you know, jumping on someone else's ship if they feel that they have a justified reason. I imagine, the, I mean, the Turks are definitely flexing their muscles in the region. What, what impact is that going to have on security, on shipping, whether people will even be willing to ship, and uh, how it's going to affect costs? Oh, this, is, this is something which we've just seen now in the um, Black Sea Grain Initiative. So at that point that the political agreement was finally reached between Ukraine, Russia, uh, UN, I think Turkey was also involved because, you know, they're the, the, the stakeholders in the Bosphorus and so on and so forth. At that point, politically, it was a reality and it was possible. The next problem, and that took even longer to solve, was finding insurers who would be willing to insure the ships and their cargoes. Because ships can't operate without insurance. And at the beginning, it was extremely difficult to find insurers. Uh, And the maritime insurance business is is a complicated one. I have very, very little understanding and insight of it. One of it's based in London out of Lloyd's, but they're not the only insurers. But the fact is that the commercial side there was, was more difficult than the security side. So... You have to understand that it's not just a case of what's this state going to do, but the question of how is industry going to respond. And I'll give you an example. When, when piracy began to become a problem off the Horn of Africa, the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, issued guidance that they said it's not a good idea to have armed guards on board your vessel because it will escalate the situation. Industry thought otherwise. And the first people who came under pressure were the flags. So those flags who were ready to set up a regime where armed guards could be on board their vessel suddenly saw a flood of ships moving to that flag because the owners wanted to be under a flag where they could do what they wanted with armed guards. Then the IMO came under pressure. And in fact, their guidance in the period of about two years changed 180 degrees from you shouldn't have them on board to, okay, if you're going to have them on board, they need to follow these criteria. Right. So industry has a very, very, very influential role in driving what happens, a lot more than in any other sector I'm aware of. It's extremely powerful. I mean, you saw what happened when Boeing 737 Maxis started falling out of the sky. You know, the regulators jumped on Boeing, who had been given a little bit of rope to self-regulate, and they said, forget it. This is coming back to, to you know, to government regulation. A lot of that, however, in the maritime industry remains a industry-driven thing. So, so the industry will also have a, a, a voice at that table. 
Interesting. Because, I mean, you, you hear of shipping magnates and they, they are incredibly wealthy. But how much of their wealth is actually liquid? Because I imagine most of it is tied up in you know, very expensive bits of kit, isn't it? Yes and no. Um, Does it depend on how long they've been doing it? It it depends on how long they've been doing it. What we saw, for instance, across the pandemic and after the pandemic is quite a lot of consolidation uh, in the shipping industry, uh, although some of that was actually blocked by governments under, under competition rules. We saw a number of smaller companies just falling by the wayside, no longer able to operate. But we didn't see the same colours, for instance, we saw in airlines. So it's a much more liquid industry than, for instance, the airline industry. In the airline industry, I think you probably have a lot more tied up in your infrastructure and your transport systems, the aircraft themselves, than you do in the vessels. The other thing is, it's very common that large shipping companies may not own a single ship. They will do time they will do time charters or spot charters for particular cargoes. That's something which doesn't exist in the aviation industry. If you if you lease an aircraft, you're usually leasing it for a number of years, and it remains a financial burden upon you. Whereas in the shipping industry, you can you can spot charter for a single voyage a vessel, or you can time charter it for a number of voyages. Okay, let's have a quick dig into the insurance space uh, again. I know Lloyd's used to have unlimited liability for the names on Lloyds. Does that still exist? Because I imagine that has to be a barrier to anyone offering insurance. What's happened now is industry has started offering insurance for specific things. One of the major problems there was was pollution. Because there, you weren't just paying off the owners of the ship and potentially the owners of the cargo. You had a coastal state which had been subjected to damages, and the cleanup costs were the major component of what was paid out after something like that. And the cleanup costs last not just for a couple of months or, or years, they can last, you know, 10, 20 years, cleanup efforts. For, for what? For a disaster like an Exxon Valdez or something? Like an Exxon Valdez, yeah. So you've got the, all the impacts on the industry. So what happens now is that the, the, the industry organisations have set up funds to which the owners and operators pay a a, a regular a regular you know um, contribution, yeah, yeah, and then these funds are used to cover that type of liability. So what you're also seeing is that you now have different insurers for the vessel itself and the cargo. Whereas before, right, was- so they're insuring for very specific risks and only a little piece of it. Only a little piece of it. That must be incredibly complex. It's a co- it's you know it's it's a world of its own. Then you have uh, area. I mean, this is why there's all these arguments about which areas are designated conflict areas and so on and so forth. Because then you have the war risk, premia, and so on and so forth. So if if you're splitting the premia uh, into different components, yeah, and you have to have insurance. Does that mean that some flags are able to bypass most of the safety and security regulations and still get insured if they word it correctly? Or they they omit certain insurances? The, the, The problem for the insurer 
is always going to be having an insight into who actually owns the ship and the cargo, who's chartering the vessel, because the system is so complicated. So they now have very sophisticated organizations of, you know, ex-intelligence officers and FBI agents and policemen who do their, do their due diligence for them and also investigate claims because there's been a lot of, of activity over fraudulent claims as well. Because it's very difficult now to understand a ship at a particular moment in a particular location, which are the parties which are commercially involved. As I said, there could be myriad. There could be you know 15 parties involved in that ship at that moment, depending on who owns the cargo, who insures the cargo, who owns the vessel, who operates the vessel, who's their manning agency, who's the, in, uh, the ship safety manager, the management company, and so on and so forth. It, it's very, very complex. This is fascinating. So looking into the future, how do you see uh, maritime trade and maritime security evolving over the next five, 10 years? Where, where are the big flashpoints and challenges? So starting from technology, the big challenges are going to be, as I said, autonomous vessels. The first pilot projects on a small scale have already started. So I know there's a fully autonomous ferry in Norway, I think, crossing a fjord. There's some activity in Korea and Japan with small-scale vessels. But it's going to be a question of how fast and how far autonomy is going to go. Because there's, I think, at least four models of autonomy, which are graduated stages of autonomy for ships, which have been defined. And the question is whether we're actually going to reach that nobody on board computerized automated ship and what vulnerabilities does that expose us to the other issue on technology is going to be propulsion and fuels because like every other industry shipping is having to i'm not sure completely decarbonize but at least significantly reduce its its carbon footprint so now alternative fuels like ammonia and hydrogen non-carbon fuels Nuclear is on the on the table again, and what problems yeah. does that bring with it? Electric, in certain applications, again like short short route ferries, is is beginning to gain ground. And hybrid is already out there. Hybrid is is now becoming quite common in the shipping industry, so um, that they can operate for a significant period of time from batteries, but also have a, an internal combustion backup. Um, and that's the technology side from the security side geographically one of the major flashpoints is clearly going to be the South China Sea and how far China manages or is permitted to push its claims there in terms of how it can restrict other activities in that particular maritime area all the choke points you know Singapore Straits Panama Canal, Suez Canal. I mean, we hear now about, um, I think, an Iranian task group, Iranian Navy task group, which is just docked in Brazil, which is headed towards Panama to be able to secure the canal, they said, which is obviously causing some amount of um, grief in Washington. Secure the canal for whom? Good question. Next question. Yeah, <laughs> it's posturing. But it, what, they're, what they're trying to say is that we can get there. We can reach out from where we are. We can touch that particular piece of infrastructure, which is critical to everybody. You know, 
So that must be making the Americans quite nervous. Nervous, I'm not sure, but they're certainly watching it with interest. And the other flashpoints are going to be the northern routes, which are now becoming accessible because of the melting of the polar ice cap. So you have the routes uh, north of Canada, and you have the route north of Russia, both of which represent significant distance savings for certain shipping. So if you're coming from Far East to Europe, it's a lot quicker to go north of um, Eurasia than it is to pass all the way down through Southeast Asia, Indian Ocean, and then up through the Suez Canal, and then through the Mediterranean, and then round the corner again. So as these routes become more accessible, who's going to Boston? Who's going to uh, make money off them? What are the environmental impacts going to be? What are other impacts? I mean, can we provide search and rescue in the far north? Yeah, that's the question. Because we're seeing now also cruise ships heading up towards the Arctic and down towards the Antarctic. And what happens if we have a Costa Concordia in the Antarctic? You know. Or a Titanic. Well, Titanic, I know. Do we have the capacity, we as a world community, is there the capacity to get in there and, and conduct rescue? And what are the subsequent um, environmental impacts going to be? So there's a lot happening. The, I mean, these cruise ships are bloody enormous. They're not the type which are heading down to the Antarctic. Those are right. expedition cruise ships, which are built specifically. Ah. They're built to a specific construction code for Arctic waters. That makes sense. Okay. And also the, the, the nautical crew also require specific qualifications to operate in those waters. But cruise ships in general, as far as I'm concerned, those are the biggest security nightmare there is. You know, They now have 8,000 to 10,000 people on board between crew and passengers. Yeah, they're like a town. They're a very security-conscious industry, extremely security-conscious, because they understand how vulnerable they are to a big security incident and what that will mean for them. But I think it's a question of when rather than if somebody managed to get on board there and cause absolute havoc. Hmm. Be That's sobering. Oh, yes. I don't go on okay. cruise. <laughs> okay. Andrew, we've come to time. Tell me this. You, you look back on your career. What was your best mistake? Best mistake. Oh, good Lord. It has to be professional. No, I mean, it can be any, but I'm just curious what you learned from it. I think the best mistake I ever made was one of perception. Uh, it happened back in what must have been 1998. Uh, I was still driving. Early patrol. out of short trousers. No, I was still driving patrol boats in that day. I was a very young officer. And we were sent out to sea because... Somebody had reported a boat adrift with a number of people on board. And we didn't know about maritime migration back in those days. you know. So we head down south, and sure enough, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, adrift is this small fishing boat with 27 people on board who had embarked in North Africa and Libya and were trying to head towards Europe, broken down and adrift for a few days. And uh, got them on board. They were all from Somalia, and there was one of them, very distinguished elder gentleman, about 60 years old, who was a master mariner. He showed me his, 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 his um, license. You know, he was a qualified mariner. Clearly, the situation at that time was so desperate in Somalia, so we felt they had to leave. So we're talking to them, you know, and, and they're very happy they've been rescued. And one of my guys says, don't worry, we'll get you back to Malta. You'll have everything you need, medical attention, etc., and then we'll get you home. <laughs> and he flipped. 
And he said, no, anything but that. Please kill me, but don't send me home. Well, uh, you know, and uh, at that moment, it clicked to me that you really have to walk in someone's shoes to understand what they're going through. It was a stupid thing of my guy to say. It was stupid of me to, to let it be said. But it never occurred to me just how much people could reject where they grew up and where they, they had all their roots because they were so desperate for something better. To get into a boat which was presumably overstocked with people and desperately unstable um, with dodgy life belts and if no, no life belts, uh, no life belts, and to try and cross the Mediterranean, which it, the uh, yeah, when it's calm isn't so bad, but that does have a tendency to be a bit rough because I've seen thirty foot waves quite happily sat on the front and slim. Uh, it's one of my favourite things in life, watching a storm. But it's an unpleasant journey if you're on a boat. Um, if there are 27 of you and you're trying to escape poverty or whatever else, it must be a horrific. It is. Yeah. Unless you've had the opportunity to see these things and understand these things, they can be really hard to conceive of. I mean, the one, the person who impressed me most, a few years later, we, we, we conducted another rescue and there was a man on board he was with his 15-year-old son, but the man was blind. And he had got on this leaky dinghy to sail across the Mediterranean, and he can't see what's happening around him. He can only hear, and he can only have it described to him by his son. I wouldn't do that if I was in full possession of all my faculties. And yet this person found it to be an acceptable risk, even though he had this limitation of not being able to see what was going on. I think we, we forget that there is a backstory to all of these people's journeys as oh, well. Yeah. And it's probably been going on for a long time. And for them to crack and finally decide to leave their home is a huge undertaking. It is. And it's they're exploited by the groups who facilitate it as well, who encourage them, obviously, um, yeah. and tell them it's going to be a lot easier than it actually is. But um, I learned that you should never try and 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 assume that somebody is happy at home because maybe home is a worse place than they are at that moment. <laughs> okay, fair point. If people want to learn about the maritime industry and uh, supply chains, is there anything that you could recommend that they can read, watch, listen to? My favourite website is a website called Maritime Executive. It's open website, not pay for. And it has a real variety of articles on all areas of shipping, construction, government activities, uh, salvage and distress, even offshore wind industry and so on and so forth. So there's a really good variety of, um, of articles and a very wide range of contributors. So if I had to recommend a website, Maritime Executive is a really good website. There's a lot of good books out there about the maritime industry, both Fiction and non-fiction, because there are some good fiction books out there. Um, I, I don't remember the name of the author right now, but he writes a series of books about the activities of an insurance investigator in the maritime industry. I'll get you the name for that. And those are excellent books because, you know, although they are fiction, they describe exactly how the industry works. And you can come away with a very good understanding of it. So there's a lot out there. Uh, there's a lot of good um, academic articles as well about shipping, which are worth reading. They may be a bit dry at first, but they actually contain, you know, a lot of useful information, a lot of useful understanding. But the best way is to find someone who's in the business and sit down with them and have a chat with them and ask them about what they do in their particular sector. And you'll always learn something interesting.
So a couple of books that might be worth people reading. One is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zahan, and that's Z-E-I-H-A-N. And Confessions of an Economic Hitman is another one because that talks about how China in particular, but the US, Britain and so on, have been using soft power to control and get ownership or uh, control of supply chains and raw materials. It's by a guy called John Perkins. I would strongly recommend that as well. They are quite inflammatory and quite uh, sensationalist, but it does give you a sense of what might be possible. And the other one I would definitely pay attention to is Ray Dalio's Making Sense of the New World Order, looking at economic cycles and the fourth turning by William Howe, uh, uh, sorry, William Strauss and Neil Howe. Um, I found uh, all of those very enlightening. The other thing is in in uh, the maritime industry, unfortunately, one of the backdrops which you do have to understand is the legal system, because it's really closely entwined with the industry. And, and it's impossible to understand how the maritime industry or the maritime space works properly unless you have at least some understanding of its uh, legal framework. So if you really want a deeper understanding, you do have to then sit down and understand what is a flag state, what are their responsibilities, and what are their rights and obligations. So it's important that you also read a little bit about the uh, maritime law side of things. Uh, Having an understanding of maritime law is critical to any part of the maritime industry. At least that's what I've found. We don't have time to talk about it today, but what I'd like to explore in future is how the naval uh, conflicts are now moving into space, because I think where uh, the Third World War has already started um, is out in space, because uh, whoever gets to exploit the unlimited resources of space then basically breaks economics. And I'm very curious to see how the experience of maritime powers is now being taken out into um, the ether. From the legal perspective, a lot of what's being done in, in space law, in international space law, is actually being drawn from international maritime law. I figured it might be. That, that's, that, those aren't the only final frontiers. I mean, there are other things like uh, 2048, the Antarctica Treaty, the International Antarctica Treaty, which demilitarizes Antarctica and stops states from making a claim. It expires. What happens after that? Does somebody invade Antarctica? You know, so there are lots of interesting things happening. And you also always have to look at the legal background to understand when they're going to kick off and how they're going to kick off. And whether anyone uh, in charge gives a damn about the legal backdrop, because that seems to um, go out the window. And how can people get hold of you? Okay, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Happy to to accept any any connection requests there. So you'll find me there. I do contribute a few articles as well, if you have the time and patience to read them. You can also get me on my email, which is MarsecMalter, all in lowercase. That's M-A-R-S-E-C-M-A-L-T-A, at Outlook.com. And again, happy to receive emails uh, and discuss anything which you'd like to discuss. Uh, I'm not on any other form of social media. I have to apologize. I don't TikTok. I don't Instagram. I don't Facebook. I, I don't imagine your target market spends a lot of time looking for you on TikTok. Yeah, I'm also so security conscious that I just think it's a crazy thing to do, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Doesn't work with your kids, though. No. Maybe <laughs> not. Good stuff. Andrew Malia, thank you.
Pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're somebody who feels like you're having to sacrifice your principles for the sake of your quota, and you really are sick and tired of uh, having your values stretched when you're trying to sell to your customers, then drop me a line. There's a link below to set up a, a call. But if you want to sell ethically and be successful, then we should chat. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.